chairman of the committee for the uh, RUF ministries within our presbytery. He has been on staff with uh, Midtown and, and uh, the City Church in Nashville. And recently, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that Richard could attest more to this than, than myself. Uh, the Nashville Presbytery has taken on a full-time pastor. And that pastor is uh, basically the pastor for pastors within our presbytery. And that individual is Tom. And we thank you, Tom, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. The only time I've been in this room has been for meetings of our presbytery, the regional areas of our Presbyterian churches. So it's a real delight for me to be here to worship with you. We are uh, going to look today uh, at a book that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, wrote called Philippians. It was written to the church in a city called Philippi. And uh, at the end of that letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, uh, he's concerned about the peace of the church. If uh, we would look uh, at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, you would see he's concerned about relational peace. Uh, in particular, he's concerned about two women, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, and he calls them to peace. So he's concerned about relational peace. But following that, uh, he speaks of personal peace, uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Uh, he's concerned about the peace that the people experience in their own soul in their relationship with the Christ, uh, with the God of the faith that he's talked about all the way up until uh, chapter 4. So we want to see uh, in this book how Paul paints a picture of the contrast between anxiety and peace. Uh, we are helped by Peter who said, cast all your cares on him, uh, for he cares for us. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about us. So anxiety, I want to help us understand, is the lack of confidence uh, and our trust in, in God's care that produces anxiety. It's what a lack of confidence or trust in God's care for us, what that produces. It produces anxiety. Of course, uh, peace would be the opposite of that. Uh, peace uh, is the personal peace that we experience by a trust and care, or trust and confidence that God cares for us. That produces peace. A lack of that trust produces anxiety. A presence of that trust produces peace. So Paul is here to talk about how he is desirous that the people in the church at Philippi would know that peace, and therefore he desires that for us as well, the church throughout the ages. I guess all of you uh, have heard someone use the comment, this is out of this world, right? Have you used that phrase yourself before? Oftentimes it's used about food. We'll taste something and say, that is out of this world. Uh, last year, my wife and I took a trip to New Orleans, and we had never been, and uh, we said that about everything we ate. I mean, literally. I mean, Nashville has great food. We enjoy a lot of great restaurants in East Nashville in particular, but there wasn't a meal that we ate that we didn't say, this is unbelievable. This is out of this world. And this peace that Paul is talking about here in Philippians is a peace that is out of this world. It's a supernatural peace. It's a peace the world can't provide, uh, but the God who redeems his people can. We're going to look at four things, as you can see uh, in your uh, bulletin. There's a little uh, outline of this message. We're going to look at a peace that's out of this world through rejoicing, through uh, praying, through thinking, and through practicing. Let's read then this passage from Philippians 4. 
I'll start at verse 4, and I will read through verse 9. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Join me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful that you desire your people to know a personal peace that is supernatural. It really is out of this world. You desire that your people not live in a state of anxiety, that they, Lord, would know what it is to trust, that you care for them, that you care for us, and that produces peace. As we look at these four aspects, Lord, of which you have given your church, to experience the peace of God in a very personal, real level. I pray, minister to us now. Help our hearts and minds to be attentive to what your word says. We pray that the cares that we may be carrying with us today, as we come into the service, or the cares we are concerned about next week, we would be able to lay aside and give them to you, and that you would come and minister to our needy souls. In Christ's name, amen. First of all, then, that this peace that's out of this world comes uh, through rejoicing always. Verse 4 says that very clearly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So a lifestyle of rejoicing, I'd like to propose, flows from a conviction. A lifestyle of rejoicing flows from the conviction of God's purpose for me and his control of all things to fulfill that purpose. A life of rejoicing flows from a conviction of God's purpose for me and his control of all things to fulfill that purpose. A conviction, by the way, is different than a belief. A belief is something that you hold. A conviction is something that holds you. So God's purpose, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, if we want to know what is the purpose for God's people, no matter who they are, there's an overarching purpose that God has, and 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that purpose is that we would be transformed into the image of Christ. That happens day by day by day until he calls us home to be with him, and that process will be completed. That is his purpose, to conform me, to conform you into the image of Christ. So God's control then means that he uses all things to work together for good in our lives. Every minutia in our lives, God controls that he might affect his purpose in you and in me. So here's what that means. 
is that when we face difficulty in particular, because this is where oftentimes it becomes a struggle to grasp what I've just said, that when it comes to struggles and hardships in our life, we need to view God much more as a surgeon than a fireman. God is not coming to put out fires that somehow just kind of happen, and he didn't know it was going to happen. He's trying to make the best out of a bad situation. God's not a fireman. God is a surgeon. God is performing and affecting his purposes through that hardship to accomplish glorious purposes as hard and as painful as it might be. God is in control to affect his purposes. So here's the point that the faith of a rejoicing Christian is grounded in a confidence or trust in God's care that produces the fruit of peace. Rejoicing always. Secondly, a peace that's out of this world is through praying everything. Look again at verses 6 and 7. And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just a couple statements about this. We could spend months on this whole theme of prayer, obviously. But let me just say these few things about what prayer fundamentally is. Prayer is fundamentally about me seeking and participating in God's will, not about me demanding and fulfilling my will. Prayer is a wonderful thing that we have the privilege and the call of God to enter into prayer that I might understand and participate in the will of God. I don't know why God uses prayer to accomplish his will, but he does. He does. We can participate in it if we wish through prayer, or we may not, but God will use the prayers of his saints to accomplish his will, whatever it may be. Here's another way of saying the same thing. Prayer is fundamentally about me being changed, not about me trying to change God. I'm not trying to coerce God or to talk God into something he doesn't want to do when I pray. I'm there to seek his will. Just like Jesus sought God's will in Gethsemane before he was taken away to be crucified, what did he say? You, almost all of you probably know what he does say, but it doesn't matter if you don't. Here's what he said. He says, not my will, but your will be done. If Jesus, the Son of God, had to pray that prayer, do we need to pray that prayer? <laughs> yes, we do. Because prayer is about participating in God's will, not affecting and accomplishing my own will. So we read in 1 John 5 this that substantiates what I've just said. Uh, John writes this, he says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the request made of him. So to the degree that what I pray intersects with the will of God, God will accomplish that. God will fulfill that. The writer of Psalm 130 speaks of what one is to do once they've prayed. This is what it says in verse 5 of Psalm 130. The psalmist says, I, after they prayed, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. That's our disposition once we've prayed. 
Eugene Peterson in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, says this about that verse I've just read. He says, hoping is not dreaming. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans that we demand God to put into effect, telling him both how and when to do it. That is not hoping. That's bullying God. So here's the point. The faith of a praying Christian is grounded in a confidence or trust that God's care produces the fruit of peace. Third, a peace that's out of this world comes through thinking excellently. Let's think of what is said again in verse 8. Paul wrote, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. In our culture today, uh, we find that we hear, uh, we read, uh, we explore, perhaps even on the Internet. What do we do when we have anxiety or fear? And what Paul is saying here is the opposite of the popular cultural belief about what you do about anxiety. Because the general way that our culture deals with anxiety is that we need to remove certain thoughts from our minds, is it not? You need to empty your mind. You need to get rid of stuff. That we shouldn't think negative thoughts anymore. We need to empty our mind of such things. It's negative thinking. Or we need to get away so our mind isn't engrossed with the things that bother us. We need to take a vacation, take a trip, take a day away, go to the game, go to the concert, empty your mind. Now, none of those things are wrong. I'm not saying those things are wrong. Obviously, I hope you understand that. But the way Paul says we deal with an anxiety that's gripped us, it's not by emptying things from our mind. It's not by getting rid of distractions. We don't do that. What does he say we should do? We are to fill our mind with excellent thoughts. To fill your mind. So Paul says if we fill our mind with excellent thoughts, the God of peace will give us this out-of-the-world peace that will what? Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It will guard your hearts and minds. This word guard uh, is used in the Old Testament to talk about completely surrounding and fortifying a building or city to protect it from invasion. Oh, that's, a great, that's a great picture. That when we're able to fill our minds with those things that God wants us to fill it with, so that anxiety would not rule, but peace would rule, then we're guarded. It's the kind of thinking that builds a confidence or trust in God's care for me. So Paul has talked about excellent thinking, about renewing the mind elsewhere uh, in his letters. Uh, we read this in Philippians 2 in the Phillips translations. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within, so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. It meets all his demands and moves toward the goal of true maturity. That's a great verse. So where do we go? And what do we do to think that way so that we can have a confidence or a trust in God's care for us? 
I think the answer to that question, as we think of that verse, is helped by looking at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 uh, deals, I believe, with what is at the heart of what Paul is saying here in Philippians 4. This is Psalm 19, 7-11. You might want to keep an eye on what you uh, heard me read, if you have your Bible, in Philippians 4, what he says about the kind of thoughts we're supposed to have, and what I'm going to read here in Psalm 19. This is a psalm about the Word of God, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Excellent thinking comes by filling our mind with God's excellent word. All that you read in Philippians 4 about the kind of thinking you're supposed to have are characteristics of the word of God. It is getting God's thoughts into our minds. That's what Paul is teaching. Getting God's thoughts to be our thoughts. Getting into his word. Tim Keller says it this way about this passage in Philippians 4 concerning excellent thinking. He says, see what Paul is doing? Keller writes, he is saying, if you are a Christian today and you have little peace, it may be because... You are not thinking. Peace comes from a disciplined thinking out of the implications of what you believe. Think big and high. Realize who God is and what he has done, who you are in Christ. Put your troubles in perspective by remembering Christ is troubled on your behalf. Keller goes on to write about stupid peace uh, and smart peace. He says that stupid peace is a peace pursued by not thinking at all or by thinking about your overall situation from your own limited perspective. He calls that stupid peace. Smart peace, Keller says, is a peace pursued by thinking outside the box of our limited perspective and instead thinking thoughts after God's broad, eternal perspective. We need to understand that the minutia of our lives, not just the magnitudinous situations of our lives, are under God's control. And if they are then, we can never play the victim in what happens to our lives. We're never a victim in God's economy. If I play the victim, I'm in a bad way, and anxiety is not going to go away very quickly. I can think of a time in my life when uh, I was full of anxiety uh, at a particular event that occurred for me. When I was in seminary, uh, I had two angioplasties. I was, eight, I was 40 years old. I was an avid jogger and had symptoms while jogging uh, while in seminary in St. Louis. And uh, finally, after not being able to finish jogs, which I thought was due to the cold uh, in St. Louis during the wintertime, I went to the doctor and I had two blocked arteries. And uh, they unblocked them. Five weeks later, one reblocked, or what they call reoccluded, 
and they had to open that artery again. Ten years forward now, I'm jogging, and I have symptoms. This time I know what's going on. <laughs> we go to the ER in Williamsburg, Virginia, where I was pastoring. They took us to Newport News, Virginia, to a heart specialist, and they said, uh, you uh, have blocked arteries. We need to do open-heart surgery. We can't open them up by angioplasty. I fell into a really deep, dark depression. I've talked to people, counseled people with the depression. They said it feels like falling into a hole, and you just spiral down, and you can't get out. It gets darker and darker and darker and darker. I was spiraling. I was thinking, what if I code on the table and I don't make it out of heart surgery? You know, my children aren't married. Uh, what if I never hold grandchildren? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll never see the spouses of my two children. What about Cheryl? Who's going to take care of Cheryl? I was so depressed. Then God reminded me of his word. He reminded me of his word that says this. In your book were written, every one of them, the days uh, that you formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God said to me through that verse, Tom, I've numbered your days. and I'm not changing my math. They were numbered before you were born. You don't know how that last day is going to be lived. It could be a heart attack. It could be a car accident. It could be cancer. You don't know. I know. I've numbered your days. I'm Lord. I'm in control. If I take you home now, it's God's purpose not just for me, but for my wife and my children, and things I can't probably grasp or understand, but God is Lord. He's numbered them. Let God be God. It's awfully exhausting trying to be God. That word ministered to me in that way. It is a wonderful thing to have God's word hidden in your heart that he can use by his spirit to cause you to think excellently. Fill your thoughts by knowing God's thoughts. Thinking excellently now, I want you to understand this, is a dynamic it's not a static situation. It's not a static thing that we want to think about. We want to think about a dynamic thing. It's the dynamic of coming to the Word, often, over a lifetime. So we can just think of, for instance, the manna in the wilderness that was collected by uh, the children of Israel, where daily they collected the manna that God provided for them. If they collected more than they needed for a day, some of you know what happened to that manna that was over-collected. It spoiled. They couldn't eat it. You couldn't store up manna. And then on the Friday, uh, the second to the last day of the week, they had to collect enough for the next day, which was the Sabbath. That day, the double collection didn't spoil. But every other day, you collected more than you needed for the day. wouldn't 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 be sustained. It would it would be no good. Well, isn't isn't that helpful for us to think in the same way about God's word? When Jesus is being tempted by the evil one, by Satan, before his public ministry began, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus said to the evil one, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How much of the word has God given us to live by? Every single word. We're to live by it. And the way we do that is we don't live off the momentum of the manna we collected last week. We gather more manna today and then the next day. We come to the word often, 
frequently as a habit of life because we're nurtured by that word that results in thinking excellently that provides the peace of God. So here's the point. The faith of a thinking Christian is grounded in a confidence or trust in God's care that produces the fruit of peace. Last, the peace that is out of this world is through practicing whatever or anything or all things. It doesn't matter. We practice what God's given us. Paul writes, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, the Christian life is predominantly a relationship. That's what we understand. That Christ has not given us just a moral code. He has, as have the prophets before him and as the apostles did after him. But predominantly, primarily, foundationally, he gave us himself, that we might have a transformed relationship with this living God, that his relationship changes us. So it's a relationship, not just information, is it? It's a relationship, not just information. So like any relationship, growth in that relationship involves an appropriate response to what I learned from that person, doesn't it? So when I'm getting to know Cheryl when we were dating before we were engaged, and then during the engagement, and then after we were married, our dialogue, our living together, isn't just for me to, glad, you know, to collect data about Cheryl, although I do. What is that supposed to do for me the more I learn about her? It's to change the way I relate to her, isn't it? It's so that I respond to her in a way that's full of love and compassion accordingly based on what I know about her, what her needs are, what her desires are, what her wishes are, that I delight in delighting her, right? So in the same way, we have a relationship with the Lord that's to do the same thing. It's not just collecting data about this God from his word. It is engaging in a relationship with God that transforms the way I respond to the God of this word. I'm called to respond to him. I'm called to obey him. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So we read in Ecclesiastes this concerning what I've just said. It says, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's the long road of Christian living by coming to the word, being changed by it, responding to the God of the Word in a way that honors Him by obedience that honors the Lord. It's the accumulation of those practices over time. I've learned over doing a whole lot of marital counseling this one truth with couples that I counsel. I frequently tell couples this, that it's common that complicated marriage problems result from neglecting the simple things over a long period of time. Complicated marriage problems often come, most often come, by neglecting the simple things over a long period of time. It's the same thing in Christian living. If we're going to wait and only try to thrive based on mountaintop experiences, you're not in a healthy place. 
It is coming to that relationship to listen to him and to respond to him over a long period of time. Folks, it's not complicated. It's very simple. But the neglect of it creates spiritual complications if we do so. It really does. It truly does. So here's the point. The faith of a practicing Christian is grounded in a confidence or trust in God's care that produces a fruit of peace. What Paul is asking us to do, he has learned to do. A little bit later, just a few verses later, in verse 11 of chapter 4, Paul says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What Paul is telling us, and I'm telling you, Paul said, I had to learn this. I'm learning this. We all have to learn this. We don't get it today or tomorrow. We learn it over a lifetime. And Paul is telling us he had to learn this. So Jesus came into the world promising a supernatural peace. Here's where the term supernatural comes from. From John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, I have not talked today about peace with God. What was read from Ephesians 2 earlier today talks about how peace with God was obtained. It was by Christ being nailed to the cross, and we who were enemies were made at peace with God. I didn't talk today about peace with God. But peace with God produces in the life of the Christian, if we practice the means he's given us to know it, we can experience the peace of God. Because I have peace with God, I have supernatural need, means that I practice so I can experience the peace of God. That's what we're being called to do. That by rejoicing and praying and thinking and practicing these supernatural means produce a supernatural result, which is the peace of God. We're talking about striving after him who has first loved us. I'm not talking about earning God's love. I'm not talking about leveraging God's love. The peace with God has accomplished that. There's no more love you can obtain from the Lord if you're at peace with God. You have all of God's love. So you're practicing these things that produce supernatural peace experientially. Don't leverage our relationship with God, but they change us as followers of God. They give us his peace. Dallas Willard has said, the gospel is against earning, not effort. Paul said, I've worked harder than all of you. That's why Paul learned what he's telling the church in Philippi, and as a result, us today, what we're to do. That we exhibit an effort not to gain God's love, but because we have God's love. God's love transforms me, just like the love of my wife transforms me. I want to love her who loves me. That's a gift of God. The supernatural peace of God, a peace out of this world, when God give us grace to practice the means to know that peace. Let me pray. Father, for this time, we thank you. We praise you for the peace with God that has given his people the peace of God by these means. Lord Jesus, put it into our heart to know the practice of these things, that by them we would be a transformed people. In Jesus' name. Amen.